OAJT readers, welcome to July's podcast for AJT Highlights. Uh, this month is a special issue on COVID-19. Uh, as you know, we have done two individual podcasts specifically for COVID-19, and the July issue has a major focus uh, on a number of papers on COVID-19. So all of these for July's podcast will be on COVID-19 and, and in an aspect of transplantation. With me as usual is Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska. And we have a special guest today, Lisa McElroy, who is a junior faculty member, transplant uh, surgeon at Duke. And Lisa is doing a year-long AJT editorial fellowship. And this is exciting not only to have Lisa, but we will be having more AJT editorial fellows throughout the year to get some experience with working with us on the podcast, as well as learning how to become a reviewer and eventually on the editorial board for AJT. So Lisa, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, and Josh. Thanks for having me, um, Josh and Roz. And thanks to Dr. Kirk for selecting these articles for discussion this week. All right, great. So let me go over just the list of papers and then we'll dive right in. So uh, there's six this month. The first is early impact of COVID-19 on transplant center practices and policies in the United States by Boyarsky et al. And second is solid organ transplantation programs facing lack of empiric evidence in the COVID-19 pandemic, a bi-proxy society recommendation consensus approach by Richel et al. The next is a familial cluster, including a kidney transplant recipient of coronavirus disease 2019 in Wuhan, China by Chen et al. Next one is SARS-CoV-2 infection in a renal transplant patient, a case report, seminari et al. Next one, fifth one is a first case of COVID-19 in a kidney transplant recipient treated with Belatasa by Marks et al. And the last one is earliest cases of coronavirus disease 2019 identified in solid organ transplant recipients in the United States by Cates et al. So a lot of smattering of different cases, experiences with COVID-19, and I uh, hope this will be informative to the AJT audience. So, so Lisa, why don't you start off with um, your review of Boyarsky's paper? Yeah, thanks, Josh. So, um, you know, as we all know, early in the COVID-19 um, epidemic, you know, the knowledge of the rates of infections and the natural history of this illness in our recipients and um, donors wasn't totally known. And so a lot of information was being shared primarily through informal discussions, our communities of practice online and through emails. Um, as well as uh, case reports. So these two first two articles, I think, are really about an effort to shed light on some of the professional consensus that has developed around um, how to safely perform organ transplant and then also how to safely manage transplant programs during this epidemic. Um, Dr. Boyarsky and the Hops Hopkins Group in their paper, Early Impact of COVID-19 on Transplant Center Practices and Policies in the United States, tried to do this from the clinician perspective. And so they conducted a survey in the U.S. of transplant clinicians to try to examine uh, center practices. And this was right at the start of the COVID epidemic uh, in uh, the third week of March. Their survey addressed four domains. 
uh, current transplant activity, the impact of COVID-19 on practices, testing, and then treatment. And they conducted their survey over a week, um, starting with March 24th and then ending March 31st. And their method of, of survey distribution was interesting. They identified a clinical leader at each transplant center, and then they emailed that person directly with an invitation to complete the survey and a link to the survey, and then invited them to pass it on if they were unable to complete it themselves. They then used the Johns Hopkins COVID-19 incidence map, along with CDC data, to link the cumulative incidence of COVID-19 by state from the day that the survey was administered to the survey answers from individual respondents. And then through that, they were able to designate some centers as high impact based on that COVID-19 cumulative incidence rate. So for the results of their survey, they got an overall response rate of 79%, which is actually pretty high for survey results. And in terms of the, the respondents, about 60% of them were transplant surgeons and about 25% were transplant infectious disease doctors. 80% uh, of the clinicians who responded were working at academic centers, and then 25% were practicing in these high impact areas based on cumulative incidence of COVID-19. So the authors found overall um, that about 72% of living donor kidney transplant programs have been suspended, and about 67% of living donor liver transplant uh, programs have been suspended, particularly in those areas that had been designated high impact. In terms of deceased donor programs, about 80% of kidney and 75% of liver programs had at least moved to operating with some restriction. And that was also true for about 60% of pancreas programs. Interestingly, for heart and lung programs, 70% reported operating without any restriction. And some of the examples of restrictions that the respondents gave included restricting kidney transplants to highly sensitized and negative cross-matched patients or patients without dialysis access, and then restricting liver and thoracic patients to patients that were higher acuity. When they asked the respondents about their opinion for what transplant centers should be doing in terms of restricting activity, it was about 60% of clinicians that said that they thought living donor kidney transplant should be suspended, and just over half that thought living donor liver transplant should be suspended. For deceased donor transplants, those numbers were much lower. It was really about 10% of respondents that said that deceased donor kidney transplant should be paused and about 5% that said that deceased donor liver transplant should be paused. For, similarly, for thoracic organ transplant, it was less than 10% of respondents that thought that the program should stop transplanting. One area of significant consensus was outpatient visits. So 98% of respondents reported limiting their in-person in outpatient visits, and about 97% of respondents reported using telemedicine to provide that care. In terms of testing supplies, nearly half of respondents reported a shortage of tested supplies, and another 20% reported an anticipated shortage of tests, which is interesting because 80% of these respondents were working at academic medical centers, but only 25% of them were in high-impact areas. So you can see the, the concern about the ability to test um, patients really was far-reaching well beyond academia and well beyond the high-impact areas. Even more significant than that was this issue of access to critical supplies and equipment. 
So more than 70% of respondents reported an anticipated shortage of PPE, intensive care unit beds, ventilators, or blood products. So I think you have to recognize that that certainly plays a role in the ability to continue to do your trans to do kidney and liver transplants. For testing, most respondents said they had developed donor testing protocols, generally with nu nucleic acid testing. And that seemed to be less of an obstacle, but really still around one third of respondents reported difficulty getting COVID testing within 12 hours. So when even though it, there seemed to be protocols in place that clearly caused a delay in, in a significant portion of transplant centers. And then in terms of our recipients who had been infected, it was so in total, the respondents reported having cared for 148 transplant patients infected with COVID-19, and about 25% of those were reported as critically ill. One third of the patients who'd been infected had been transplanted within a year, and about half were between one and five years after transplant. For treatment, uh, interestingly, hydro hydroxychloroquine use was reported by almost 80% of respondents, even when off-label, and about 60% reported being part of a remdesivir trial. The other thing that the surveyors asked about was modification of immunosuppression, and more than 90% of respondents reported having stopped antimetabolites, but there wasn't much consensus beyond that. So I think this is an interesting study because it demonstrates that while there wasn't significant consensus around the practices of testing and treating patients with COVID-19 in the transplant community. And although in total, you know, this was again this last week of March and the respondents reported about 148 infected patients, but really the majority of centers, I think in the absence of clear data on what to do, suspended their programs at least partially. Well, it's interesting that this paper does substantiate the UNOS weekly volumes data, which many of us appreciated because you were constantly looking to see what was going on. And I think the Nader number of living donors at one point on the, on the low Nader, not the peak Nader, was 11. I think it was like in the, one of the weeks in April. And shockingly, there were still 200 deceased donor kidneys, for example. But again, I think it reflects the practices of the risk benefit. And, and I think there were some centers that just had to shut down. I think New York eventually was at its knees and, and the surgeons, you know, Dr. Kinkabala reminds us that he was like put on duty somewhere that wasn't transplant related and that people were getting, I mean, Bronx was overrun in the Queen in Queens. And so you really couldn't operate, but it's interesting to see this in retrospect now that we're behind that part. Although I guess, you know, we're going through another phase now and, and, and whether any of this is helpful because when you hear what I'm gonna talk about, it's, there's still gonna be more questions than answers, unfortunately. Yeah, I also thought it was, uh... Interesting. I'd like to hear your your comments, Lisa. That just uh, it seemed to be the how the heart and lung. It's sort of like business as usual, yeah. and then liver. It was probably the high meld or the you know the sickest patient. So it, it clearly was a, a correlation in activity between uh, risk of dying on the wait list versus risk of getting COVID with a transplant. And it just, you know, we went through that here at Northwestern too, and kind of going down to about 25% for a couple of weeks and then started to inch back. And we did our first living donor liver about mid 
mid uh, May. Uh, so we took like six, eight weeks off. So uh, I don't know. It just it's uh, it was an, in, an interesting sort of uh, difference between the the organs, but it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Yeah, I think it's interesting that that there was a difference between the perceptions and the practices, which to me really suggests that like in the absence of of data and mm -hmm. you know um, a certainty about the natural history of this in our patient population. The, the default was sort of like, well, we should just stop. I also think it's interesting about living donation because that reflects a lot of the conversations that I saw on the various communities of practice about, you know, well, if we can't be sure, can we ask a donor to come into the hospital for this surgery? Uh, the other thing that's interesting that they didn't ask about that I thought, Roz, that's an excellent point, is this idea of redeployment, right? So how do you run a transplant center if half your transplant clinicians have been redeployed to another part of the hospital? And how common is it that transplant clinicians are being redeployed versus being sort of preserved as an essential worker, you know, in with this other area of high-risk patients? So. I think that would be something interesting to look at, but they didn't ask that in this. Uh, gosh, I hope we we never have to go through this again. But I wonder. It's at least we've been through that experience, and I think it kind of hopefully shows we relatively know what to do the next time around or have a better plan for it. But it, this initial experience that you just presented, I think, is really important. I hope it's more historical, but me too. But it is a great, um, it's a great idea for how to distribute a survey and get a good response yeah. and to mm -hmm. do it quickly. I mean, I was so impressed by, they did this in seven days, you know, they leveraged the professional community, they reached out to people individually, and it worked. I mean, really almost an 80% response rate. So it's actually very useful survey data. That's a great point. Well, why don't we move on to uh, the next paper? Yeah, the second paper is from Dr. Richel and co-authors in both Germany and Portugal. And it's called Solid Organ Transplantation Programs Facing a Lack of Empiric Evidence in the COVID-19 Pandemic, a Bi-Proxy Society Recommendation Consensus Approach. Um, so to me, these authors were really attempting to achieve the same goal as the Boyarsky paper. They just used a different method. And instead of asking clinicians individually about their practices, they took to the web and conducted an online search for recommendations by transplant societies um, all over the globe. And they looked for recommendations on COVID-19 and solid organ transplant patients. And then they took those query results and developed them into themes, or I should say they took the query results and grouped them into themes that they had pre-designated. And then within those themes, they classified the degree of consensus around a variety of statements. The way that they did that was the grade that they gave, which is listed under each sort of statement, 
corresponded to the number of societies that supported that statement. And so a grade A corresponded to nine out of 19 of the societies supporting the statement versus a grade C where it would be four or less of the societies supporting the statement. So in total, they found 19 society recommendations and 25 recommendation statements. So they used four uh, themes around the, the transplant program management. So the first theme was management of long-term immunosuppressed transplant recipients. The second theme was general management of transplantation programs. The third was donor management. And the fourth was recipient evaluation. And the manuscript organizes the recommendations around these themes, but I thought I would actually go over them in terms of strength and sort of highlight those recommendations with high consensus levels that received the sort of A grade. And the first of those was um, recommendations around hygiene and lifestyle restrictions, including things like wearing masks and social distancing, opting for telework where um, possible, and that would be for transplant patients, but as well as their household members. There was also good consensus around transplant recipients being in a, at an increased risk for severe COVID-19 relative to the general population. And the authors point out that this might not be only due to immunosuppression, but also the level of comorbidity that's present in many of our patients. There was strong consensus around the reduction of elective transplants to a minimum, and in particular living donor kidney transplant programs, as well as living donor liver transplant programs in cases where the recipient had a meld of less than 25 to 30, depending on hospital resources. I thought in light of the results of the previous paper, that was actually very interesting because I wonder if some of the individual clinician thoughts on this differ from the sort of society level um, thoughts about this. For deceased donor transplant, there seemed to be good consensus around the idea that the degree of restriction of a transplant program should be weighed against hospital facilities, um, including the ability to separate COVID-19 infected hospital patients from COVID-19 negative patients. Um, and this is probably particularly important for deceased donor liver transplants who often end up in the ICU there was a second recommendation related to this um, that spoke to the idea that um, hospital staffing and ICU capacity really require um, almost a daily accounting for or a case-by-case -case accounting for prior to accepting an organ for transplant, which makes good sense given how sick many of our patients are. Um, in the area of donor management, there was consensus around screening donors based on travel history, contact with COVID-19 infected patients, and then testing donors using PCR-based testing either via a nasopharyngeal swab or a BAL. They particularly stressed that high-risk donors require PCR testing and that COVID-19 infected donors should not be considered for transplant. In terms of recipient management, the strongest consensus was around the idea that all organ transplant recipients should be screened for COVID-19 prior to transplant. Again, interesting in light of the results of the previous study where 30% of the respondents said that they had challenges getting testing in a timely fashion. So I think overall looking you know, at these recommendations, I think there's good consensus around the idea of prevention in our patients 
And, you know, early on when this was conducted, this idea that for lack of empiric data, the safest thing was to reduce or suspend activity, certainly in light of how stressed, how much your hospital system was stressed. But it's also clear, I think we need to learn more about the ability to contract COVID in our patients, um, particularly through deceased donor organs. There was not a lot of consensus at all around um, the management of deceased donor organs and how to distinguish high from low risk. We also, I think, need more information about the natural history of this disease and transplant recipients. And hopefully that is actually being achieved with some of the new studies we're seeing come out, um, you know, case series describing COVID-19 infected transplant patients um, and the natural history of how that disease manifests in that population. Well, I think you did such a great job highlighting the A grades. We have a lot of C grades in this paper, too, and a lot of blanks where people just didn't know. And, you know, I think the understanding of what therapies to use, you know, sort of a lack of consensus of, you know, if you had negative testing, you know, there was an issue about testing and waiting for testing. Um, and again, because you're using guidelines online, I, I suspect that some of those hard questions aren't always answered because there's a lot of blanks. And so I didn't, uh, I was a little confused as whether the blank meant there was no opinion or there wasn't really highlighted uh, in the online document. But I thought this was, um, as you point out, in a sort of a nice organized way, if you were trying to sort of summarize what people knew. And again, these guidelines were downloaded in mid-March. So some of these sites had significant experience because they were in Europe or in Asia whereas some of the sites, you know, really had really no experience yet um, and, and had some opinion, you know, I think the U.S. was really trying to get ahead and reaching out. I know why I reached out personally to European colleagues because we were like sort of in a panic and this was something where once you were already into the escalation phase of disease, you were sort of behind the eight ball. So I think it's really kind of a nice summary of all the different um, areas and, and again, some unmet needs. Yeah, yeah. I, agree. I think it's uh, just kind of a, I it, it's always great when a journal has kind of paired papers that just show a little bit of different take on sort of a similar thing, which is kind of the, the community's practice patterns, whichever way they, they've gotten the data from a survey or from you know, the experiences um, that are published or, you know, it, it, it's, and also health, the timeline of all of this had changing so quickly mm -hmm. with most of this being outside of the U.S. initially gaining that experience and then, and then, um, you know, having some of that translate probably to the first paper you presented and the, the, uh, the responses there are probably related to what was being done elsewhere. So I thought it was just, it's an interesting kind of comparison contrast to the first paper you presented. Yeah, I think of particular interest, um, you know, as Roz mentioned, in terms of some of these recommendations where there were not, there was not much consensus. Two of them that stood out for me were 3.3.6, which is this idea that deceased donors who have recovered from COVID could be safe for transplant. And then also 3.4.3, where they talk about 
patients with a history of COVID and when they would be safe to transplant. And I think, as you said, Josh, you know, the, the literature on this is evolving quickly, but those are two recommendations that we probably need to come to some consensus around mm-hmm. as a profession because the alternative is, you know, doing less transplants and accepting less organs based on, you know, this concern for transmission. So I think that's some of the research that I, you know, will be anxiously awaiting on sort of the deceased donor transmission risk. Yeah, it's very interesting. The uh, the question of when somebody's resolved the quote unquote resolved the infection, but we know it can persist a long time, especially in immunosuppressed patients. And you obviously hear these stories of people being sick for several weeks with all a variety of different complaints. It's it, it's almost not over till it's over. And uh, we don't really know when that is, I think. But, yeah. Well, thanks, Lisa. That uh, You did a great job with those, those papers and reviewing them. I think we'll um, just move on to Roz's, I think, four papers. So we... Well, they're, they're uh, short but sweet, short. Yeah, that's right. um, and now we're all experts in COVID and transplants, so um, <laughs> this, is, this is the retrospective. What I tried to do um, is to not disappoint, so I tried to come up with a kernel of maybe knowledge that I gained or, or something that struck me about these cases. So the first case report is by Chen et al. This is uh, Tanji and Wabi Provincial Hospitals in Wuhan. So part of the epidemic, pandemic. This was uh, received by AJT in, on March 11th. So one of the first, you know, I mean, may not been the first report, but it was probably one of the first cases. This was a case of a transplant recipient of a kidney um, who was became ill with uh, SARS-CoV-2 in January of 2020. So I think probably one of the first reported on based on time. And this is a cluster of cases. This is the kidney transplant recipient, his wife and his son, all of whom presented around the same time, all feeling ill. Uh, the kidney transplant recipient was admitted to the their step-down ICU. The spouse was admitted to respiratory isolation and the 24-year-old son got off scot-free sitting at home and, and taking antivirals and uh, moxifloxacin. So, and there's some uh, chest radiographs and a very nice uh, clinical documentation uh, in figure two. So interestingly, in the, in the transplant recipient, they, they ceased all of his immunosuppression and converted him to IV corticosteroids, not DEX, and had the usual random <laughs> A little of this, a little of that, which is what I think we did back in January, but uh, ribavirin and IVIG and another, and amoxifloxacin and azithro, no hydrochloroquine. Looking at the patient's labs, his initial pro-inflammatory features were not super off the wall. I've seen quite a few, although his CRP was quite high. But again, uh, demonstrating, I think importantly, you know, there's many ways to do the immunosuppressive management. This was one way. And also the rapid person-to-person transmission and how this entire family presented at once on the same day to the same clinic. And there were three different outcomes. Now they all lived, but uh, the father, the transplant recipient was quite ill. The spouse, and they were about middle-aged, the spouse did a little bit better, non-immunosuppressed. And then the son was 
you know, at home recovering this. And I'll do all these and then we can talk. I think the second yeah. is uh, by seminary and colleagues. This is the Pavia group. This is um, a report on March 20th of a transplant, a, a, a middle-aged man who was transplanted in 2016 who presented on March the 4th. So again, we're kind of moving forward in the timeline. And this case, I think, was remarkable because it was one of the first cases reported in the literature from Europe. And this patient did actually quite well, though admitted, um, mostly having respiratory symptoms. Um, Immunosuppressive management was reduction of some of his therapies. This patient had a very significantly elevated IL-6 level, again, one of the markers many groups are using um, when it's over 100, there's a correlation with innovation, but his initial uh, presentation, CRP was not super elevated and liver functions and LDH were not super elevated either, but was clearly um, lymphopenic. Again, um, this was a good outcome, but the authors noted caution because they, of course, like all of us were aware that, that some patients had done worse, but it did indicate that one of their hypotheses was this patient did well because he was on a fair amount of immunosuppression, and so perhaps that limited his inflammatory response. I'll next highlight the case by Marx uh, and all from Strasbourg and Sophie Caillard's uh, group. Uh, this was a case, uh, this is the first COVID case in a patient with bilatiseps. So for those of you that use the drug, you know sometimes patients show up with zoster or aspergillosis or CMV, and you, they've just given their injection. And unlike MMF or TAC, you're sort of committed for that week or two or three. And so this individual was a 58-year-old man who was transplanted in 2017 and converted to Bella, I think, primarily to get him down off of his calcineurin inhibitor because he was demonstrating some nephrotoxicity And needless to say, about two or three weeks after his initial infusion of Bella, which is given monthly at that point, uh, he presented and was ill. He actually had an elevated IL-6 of about 29. Again, not super badly ill, but interestingly, this group kind of coasted his immunosuppression, which is shown in one of the figures. They discontinued his mycophenolate. They did not redose his Bella at the time interval. It would have been due about a week into his illness. They actually um, had him on a little bit of PRED, and I think they actually stopped that. And then they kind of started him on some corticosteroids and low-dose cyclosporin because he wasn't on anything. And amazingly, he recovered. I mean, this patient wasn't intubated, though was hypoxemic, as all three patient cases were. Uh, Again, um, the take-home here is that, you know, it's a little tough with Bella as a maintenance drug when people get pretty ill, but you just have to realize that it's there lurking. And so not having a CNI, that's a hypothesis that groups are saying is maybe a CNI is important for anti-inflammatory responses. But this patient, again, did well. And part of it, I think, is the presentation of not being so violently ill as some patients were. And why some people are violently ill isn't clear. Parenthetically, I'll point out that these three cases, this one, the group in, um, in uh, Pavia and the Chinese uh, presentation are all men. So following along, the if you use my calculation, that's three out of four. Um, but again, showing the sex, the gender difference in terms of infection, it's clearly been higher in men and, and non-transplanted men. 
And then the last case report I'll highlight that's um, in this coming journal is is that by Olivia Cates and, and Ajit LeMay and the group at University of Washington. And this was submitted in March 22nd. Now, they, this group um, heroically put together a voluntary registry of cases where you would submit on a Google Doc um, clinical information uh, in an anonymized fashion other than your center highlighting all solid organs. And so this was probably the, one, some of the original uh, individuals who had COVID that were transplants. They present a kidney transplant of a, in a middle-aged man, so five out of five so far. They presented a, a, a 67-year-old liver transplant recipient, a 53-year-old lung transplant recipient, and a 74-year-old heart transplant recipient. All of these recipients were almost two decades out of their transplant. Suffice it to say, it's worth a, it's a good read. These patients were all borderline hypoxemic. None of them ended up getting intubated. And some were initially positive. They were all pretty positive or indeterminate on their assay for COVID. There was differences in the way immunosuppression was managed. Some of it was typically the mycophenolate was stopped and the CNIs were reduced. And yet all these patients, ultimately, some after prolonged hospitalization, the lung transplant patient and heart patient were actually kept out of the hospital and treated with supportive care. So what's the take home here? And, and again, we all now know that there are published cases where patients don't do well, where there is a significant mortality and, and identifying the rate of mortality and susceptibility is difficult because you know, we have incident cases and we don't have a denominator. I think this paper uh, wisely highlights some of the challenges, which even when they wrote this back in March, are still the same, that there's still challenges in, in triaging and testing patients. I think we're all better at getting testing at our sites now than we were three months ago. Um, protecting patients in clinical environments is still a challenge in some sites, uh, less so in others. Um, but there is social distancing, for our example, in our clinics. You know, how do we treat these patients? And in this case series with Kate, they didn't really go off the, they didn't um, really hammer patients with lots of different antivirals. And I think that um, one of the difficulties is some of the antivirals like remdesivir trial really eliminated patients with an estimated GFR that was reduced. And, you know, acute kidney injury is, is commonly a scenario that patients present in. So, you know, what are the, if, you know, in the dexamethasone you could use if that was an appropriate therapy. But again, um, you know, what are the novel agents and will they ever be tested in transplant? And there's a very nice paper in another journal in, J, in the Journal of American Science and Nephrology talking about the limitation of remdesivir when you have acute kidney injury with native disease. You know, the questions of infection control is are patients, you know, asymptomatic and shedding virus. That's the hypothesis in the news now of why some of these sites like Florida and, and Arizona are so full of cases. And, you know, how do you plan transplants in, in the future? And I think, you know, I just looked at the UDOS numbers while we were all talking and it, everything was sort of up, up, up. And now there's a little drop. And if you look at the regions, again, the mid, the south, they're kind of kooky, but it's the southwest, which includes Arizona, the Florida area and Texas, where we have big centers that do quite a bit of volume. They're down again this week, and I suspect they'll be down for a while, whether it's the lack of resources perhaps or deployments to other other units. So I'm looking forward to Dr. Cates's full case series, but I, I think there's the, there's definitely in each of these cases something that you can learn about, and particularly since it's mostly retrospective now. 
Yeah, I was curious because um, I don't, you don't use belatacep in, in liver transplant, but how you, I guess, how would you manage somebody who's getting that you, you, you know, you can't, would you just stop their other, uh, you know, their anti-metabolite and continue them on belatacept or do you have any other experiences with other viruses yeah. that people have gotten that you've had to modify? So, to modify yeah. it? so I've had a number of patients and, you know, obviously Emory was the big center, but when I was in Birmingham, we had quite a number of patients on maintenance, Bella, many of whom had started on studies and ended up staying on and liking the therapy. I mean, what, if you've just gotten the, the dose you have to presume that it's still on board because by the time when you get to the, the maintenance, it's every four weeks. So I had a patient with zoster, disseminated zoster, and um, had just gotten his Bella like a week before and probably was maybe a little symptomatic, but just noticed some pain in his neck and arm and just didn't really pay attention. And then it got more severe, which is where his outbreak was. So we managed him by reducing his MMF and, you know, kind of coming down, coming down, coming down and in, in what your threshold is. And and I think one of the difficulties here is, you know, many groups are hypothesizing that tacrolimus or, or cyclosporin, the calcineurin inhibitors may be important in the anti-inflammatory response when you mm. get beyond the initial viral. I mean, there's speculation about, you know, immunophilins and the role of viral replication. I, I'll put that aside because I'm not sure the, the data are strong, but you know, in terms of propagating this or, or, or ameliorating the anti-inflammatory this inflammatory surge, mm -hmm. there's been thoughts that maybe that's the difference between the outcomes of some centers. But I think it's difficult to pinpoint that. So it's a tough, I think it's just a tough drug. And that's why I sense that the Strasbourg group put them on. And, and that's what we would often do. I would do is I put them on something conventional, low dose as I was managing them and they were recovering and then I tried to get them back on their belly yeah. and they were well. Yeah, it seems reasonable. Well, great. I think um, we're probably going to wrap it up. That, that was a, a boatload of, of information and just a great discussion. I want to thank uh, Lisa for, for doing this and for participating in the AJT Editorial Fellowship. I hope uh, this was helpful to you to be part of the podcast. Thanks, Roz, as always. And I think we'll we'll end it here. So thank yeah, you, guys. Thanks. thanks to you both. This was great and very helpful. And it's great to be part of the AJT Editorial Fellowship. And we'll see you in a few months again. We're giving you guys the once over, the twice over. Oh, you're, <laughs> you're back. You're back with us. I'm looking forward to the rest great. of the Great, great. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.